Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jonathan All. It's time for our monthly legal roundtable, and there's plenty to discuss today. The Supreme Court on Sexual Orientation and Transgender Discrimination, the Mueller Report, the St. Louis Bail Project, St. Louis County Executive Steve Stenger, and much more. Joining me in studio to talk about these uh, issues and more are Bill Freivogel, journalism professor at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. Bill, thanks for being here. Hi. Mark Smith, the Associate Vice Chancellor of Students at Washington University. Mark, thanks. Thank you. And Marie Kenyon, who's the Director of the Peace and Justice Commission for the Archdiocese of St. Louis. And we want to mention that uh, Marie's comments will not necessarily reflect the view of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Marie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So let's start by talking about the Supreme Court. This morning they announced that they will take up a consolidated case uh, that will put Title VII to the test, specifically whether uh, sexual discrimination includes sexual orientation and transgender status. And Bill, you have some thoughts on this. Well, this will be the prob- one of the biggest cases that the court will hear next year. They won't get to it this year. Probably the oral arguments in these three consolidated cases will be probably sometime in the fall or so with a you know, decision probably a year from now. Um, but the, so the question is, in the Title VII of the federal civil rights law, uh, does the protection of discrimination against sex, does that word sex in, including sex, include sexual orientation and also include protection for transgender uh, uh, people? So one of the, um, uh, this involves a skydiver, a gay skydiver from New York, a gay uh, social services worker in Georgia, and a transgendered funeral worker in Michigan. Mark, do we have any sense whether is, do we expect this decision to be the definitive uh, word on this, at least for now? Will will this be the precedent? Well, I I think this will be a big case. Bill and I were talking before, I mean, you've got three cases together and they haven't, this this issue of uh, particularly the transgender issue has been fought in the in the circuit courts and there's not a unified view um it'll be a, a big case probably the biggest case i think since the price waterhouse uh, versus Hopkins case which was like late 80s that was the one that said sexual harassment was a recognizable claim so i think this will be a uh, a big issue it's also going to be interesting because our views of gender have evolved over the last 40, 50 years since Title VII, and so it'll be interesting to see if the Supreme Court has an evolving view. Given who's on the Supreme Court now, I think there's less likely to be an evolving view on gender. I'm I'm wondering if uh, this is going to be a a big test for what the court with Kavanaugh on it uh, looks like, sounds like, and how they decide things. Yeah, I think I, I think that it will be. Uh, and, you know, as Mark mentions, how much uh, things have changed. I mean, the word sex only appeared in the Civil Rights Act uh, back in the 60s because a, a senator, I think from Virginia, uh, put it in as a poison pill. He thought that no, he, he wanted to block any Civil Rights Act from passing. He was a segregationist. And he put in uh, protection for sex on the, on the theory that no member of Congress would ever vote to protect women. From discrimination. Well, he was he was wrong about that, and now you know we're seeing that that one word "sex" could have a lot bigger uh, implications uh, today. And it will be. I mean, whatever the Supreme Court decides, that will be it. Yeah. 
But also, for you know, your listeners who like like who look forward to the legal roundtable and like ta- thinking and talking about this stuff, there's this great website called SCOTUS Blog, that um, that has well, we were just talking before the show. This will probably have all kinds of amicus briefs filed uh, for it. But you also get very, I think, understandable summaries of what 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 are the arguments going to be about? Um, what are the briefs about? What's the central issue? And then. Once the, the Supreme Court will hear arguments, they'll, they'll analyze that and they'll analyze the ultimate decision. So just a great race resource for both lawyers and but lay people, I think, as well. I know it's important not to get ahead of ourselves because they just said that they were going to announce it. You know, they, th- there's a long way before we actually know something. But uh, it strikes me that maybe the real issue uh, that will come out of this is how definitive will, uh, whatever they decide, how definitive will it be? Because they can certainly write a decision with that's very narrowly focused on one little piece of part of these cases, or they could do something comprehensive. And uh, I, I think it's been a little bit since the court has really uh, gotten in the business of setting that big precedent that would stand for decades. Although it wasn't that long ago that we had same-sex marriage, but that's true. Uh, but you're right. A much I mean, different court. They, much they, different they, court they can. They could. They could turn out to be fractured. Uh, sometimes, uh, I mean, my recollection is that sometimes Justice Scalia, who was the late Justice Scalia, who was a very conservative justice, he sometimes uh, on some of these in statutory interpretation. Right cases involving what sex discrimination he could come down on what you might think was the liberal side you know that that sex means sex and and it, it protects against sex discrimination so um, uh, it doesn't necessarily you know the fact that the, now there are maybe uh, there are five Republican appointed more conservative justices and four Democratic appointed more liberal justices that doesn't mean that they won't be able to come up with even a, a pretty good consensus on this we'll see yeah. Um, moving on, uh, the special counsel Robert Mueller's redact- heavily, heavily redacted report uh, was released last week. Now, I think that we could talk about this for the rest of the time. We won't because it <laughs> certainly has been uh, discussed um, uh, thoroughly in a, a many different places. But, I would but like you know, as lawyers, this is what we live for. Like Four hundred pages <laughs> of legal stuff. I mean, this is like the best. So let's <laughs> let's look at it from a, a complete legal uh, issue here, because and try to, to the extent possible, remove the politics from it. Uh, what I'm very interested in is the differences in the burden for conspiracy versus obstruction of justice, and the differences in the burden when talking about whether or not to indict a sitting president. Marie, what were your, were your takeaways from what you read about and, and what you saw in the, in the report? Well, I, I mean, I think the, to indict a sitting pres, uh, president, that's a, you know, that in and of itself could take an entire show. I, I am not a legal scholar. I'm a public interest lawyer. Sure. Mark invited me on this show. I'm not sure why I'm here. But I do think, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong on this, that was just somebody's opinion, isn't it, that you couldn't indict a sitting right. president? So, th- so that comes from what's called the Office of Legal Counsel in the, in the Justice Department. It was an opinion uh, from the Watergate era that said a sitting president cannot be indicted. And that certainly... Uh, that certainly was a starting point uh, from which Mueller worked. I mean, he said that he was started with that presumption, and it also affected, I think, his decision uh, not to render a judgment 
uh, a prosecutorial judgment on uh, the obstruction of justice part of the case because he said uh, if one were to uh, were, if one were to if you can't indict a president but you say that he obstructed there's a plenty of evidence that he obstructed justice well he doesn't have a trial in which he can show why he thinks it's not true so it would be unfair to the president to accuse him publicly of obstruction of justice uh, when he can't be charged and he can't defend himself, uh, so that, that's I, I think we're, it's going to be it's going to be very interesting uh, to hear Mueller explain why he decided not to make a prosecutorial judgment because um, I, I don't think anybody even after having read the report I don't think it's it's a hundred percent clear what I, you know what I would even though this is the legal roundtable what I would suggest to listeners is. Read the report and forget about the. Read the report and forget about the law. Just ask yourself as you read if if, if you have the, you know, if you have the the time to go through it. Ask, read through it, and ask yourself: Is this something that is right? I mean, was the president acting correctly? Uh, was he telling the truth uh, in the various instances throughout the throughout the? Um, uh, throughout the report, I, I want to just—I would like to just sort of recite one interesting episode. So, one of the ten, one of the ten episodes of possible obstruction of justice uh, involves a June 17th call that uh, President Trump, then at Camp David, made to White House Counsel McGahn, in which he instructed McGahn twice on that day to um, uh, tell Rod Rosenstein to fire Mueller. Um, and uh, 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 McGahn told his friends, you know, I, there's no way I can be part of another Saturday Night Massacre, you know, a reference to when uh, Nixon fired Archibald Cox, or he had, uh, had Bork fire Archibald Cox. And uh, he said, I can't be part of this. He, he uh, told his friends he was going to quit on Monday. He started uh, making plans to pack up his office. And, and then he didn't hear anything from the, from the president the next time he met him. Well, six months passes. It's January 2018. New York Times and then the Washington Post reports that this happened, that the president instructed McGahn to have Mueller fired. Um, uh, uh, president Trump goes out and tells the reporters, hey, uh, you know, fake news, folks, fake news. Uh, another New York Times fake news story. Then he goes to McGahn and says, I want you to make, up, make a record that will show that I never asked you to do this. And McGahn refused to do that. He said, you did. Um, so, you know, that, that's, uh, you know, make your own judgment about what you think sure. is proper. Well, uh, so this, uh, our, our radio station happens to hit two states, both of which who have indicted sitting governors. <laughs> and really, that's kind of like the, the highest executive level before we get to the president. So in terms of uh, the, the difference in wanting to uh, reach a certain threshold, and do we, do we set a precedent of uh, somebody being, the president being above the law in these kinds of cases because of this belief that you can't indict a sitting president um, when, let's face it, prosecutors have gone to grand juries with a lot less than what was in the Mueller report. So how... How does, and, and, and maybe Marie, from a public interest point of view, how does this play with 
maybe, you know, a county official or a, a mayor or someone who's facing some kind of obstruction of justice or official misconduct when they see that amount of evidence not being prosecuted at the highest level? Well, I, I think it says something about the rule of law in our country. You either abide by it or you don't. I mean, the thing that stuck out for me most in the um, report was the sentence he said, if we were confident that he did not commit obstruction of justice, we would have said it. (laughs) I mean, who, you know, and so if if I'm a young kid and I'm being prosecuted for something and I mean, who's above, you can't say, well, this person's above the law, but everybody else isn't just because he's the president. So it, it says a lot about the rule of law in our country, the justice system, who it applies to, who it doesn't. I think, um, you know, Mueller was in a difficult position because remember when Barr was being confirmed as attorney general, they were, that this letter he wrote, I think to, the, to like people in the Department of Justice, he, he said he started out to write an op-ed, and then he decided, no, this is too boring and it's too complicated. I'm just going to send a letter. And it was basically his views on the, 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 the discretion that a president has to make decisions and to do things. And he has a very expansive view. And so I think when you combine that with this Department of Justice um, rule that you can't indict a sitting president, I think Mueller was in a difficult position. So when you read through this, and I haven't slugged through the whole report, but I would say um, if you're going to do it at home, start with volume two. That's more interesting. And I think it's it's very accessible. It's not like a typical legal document where you're saying, it, it, what are they talking it's about? It's like the Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, the, yeah, the second better one's better. Yeah, the original. You're exactly right. But but I think he was he's kind of preserving maybe a record for after he's president and also um, a, a, a map if Congress chooses to do something. I did read a legal analyst whose take on this was, if this is an exonerating report, I'd love to see a damning one. (laughs) We're going to have to take a break. After the break, we're going to talk local stuff with the St. Louis Bail Project and uh, St. Louis uh, County Executive Steve Stanger. Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 314-382-TALK. You can send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org. You can tweet us at STL on air if you want to get in on the discussion. I'm talking with Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Marie Kenyon, back with the Legal Roundtable in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at choosewood.com. Welcome back. I'm Jonathan All. A uh, St. Louis man uh, is alleged to have killed his wife just hours after the nonprofit organization, the St. Louis Bail Project, posted his bail. Uh, Samuel L. Scott was arrested for a misdemeanor uh, assault. He was bailed out by the St. Louis Bail Project. He got a restraining order against his wife, then allegedly killed her later that day. So my question to the panel is, uh, is how different is of a scenario are we looking at because the St. Louis Bail Project has been uh, is involved in this compared to if he had made bail on his own. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very good point. This is a horrible situation. Um, but I don't think um, the issue is the bail project bailing this person out. I think it's maybe uh, maybe they maybe we should use different standards in deciding how long we're going to Uh, hold somebody uh, or whether we're going to even allow bail if there's violence. I mean, my understanding in this case 
was there was a, he had assaulted his I don't know if it was wife or ex-wife and then was released and came back. But the bail project seems to be about the notion that we shouldn't keep people in jail just because they're poor. The idea that we have a different system for somebody who can afford to post bail and somebody who can't. And that, that I think everyone would agree that's not a, a good reason to keep it, people in, in jail. Now, having said that, when we release people on their own recognizance or release them on bail and they do bad acts, it's very easy to have um, 2020 hindsight and say, we should have kept that person in person in prison, but, but we can't uh, just take people and, and incarcerate them for no reason until they've been proven. That's the, not the way our, our system works. So it's a horrible situation, but I, don't th- I think blaming the bail project is not helpful or, or, or accurate, or, or I don't think they're culpable. I couldn't agree with Mark Moore. I mean, in the first eight months, the Bell Project's only been in St. Louis since January of last year. In the first eight months, they uh, bailed out almost 800 people, and that was just the first eight months. And this is the first time that I know of, I don't know if you guys have heard anything, that anything like this has happened. It was tragic, but if he had money, if his family had money, he would have been let out. So Mark's correct to say, well, you know, the bail project, I mean, that's just not fair. You're punishing somebody because they're poor. Just to clarify, Mark, I think he actually assaulted her in January, but for some reason they didn't issue on it until April. Um, The other issue, the fact that she was served with an order of protection, I represented victims of domestic violence for almost 30 years, and I would tell my clients an order of protection can only go so far. Um, you can't, I mean, it's a good thing, it's helpful, it's helpful with the police, but it certainly is not a magic bullet. Well, as you've worked with, uh, with uh, domestic uh, violence victims, um, any concern that when this kind of thing comes out that it'll be have a chilling effect? that it will make victims less likely to come forward, that, 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 that they will not uh, be as comfortable with working in the legal process when they have this thing holding over them, that there's somebody that has a big, has a decent amount of resources, that they're bailing people out of jail, and this tragic thing happened. Well, no, I, I don't think just because they're bailing people out of jail. I think what happens is any time that a, somebody who's being battered sees that her batterer, you know, killed some, that mm-hmm. yeah. the batterer's killed somebody, that's what stops people. Women are most vulnerable when they're getting ready to leave. And I think she had told him, I want a yeah. divorce, and that's what triggered it. So who's bailing who out really is not something they think about. It's much more, um, you know, when they're getting ready to leave or the other time that we see it is when they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot more vulnerable there? So, no, I, I honestly don't think the bail project being coming in and letting people out because domestic violence, sadly, is a broad spectrum. It's not just poor people. It's rich people. Right. It's guys who can bail themselves out with their gold credit card they happen to have in their wallet. So, Bill, in a, a, a situation where the uh, justice system is under additional scrutiny for how it treats people um, in various class situations, um, and uh, you know, even the, for the need to have the St. Louis Bail Project for the advocates who are doing that, uh, to what extent is this incident a step backwards for reform, for 
being progressive for 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 trying to change things. Well, I think it I think it is damaging. Uh, I mean, I'm a very much a, a supporter of the bail project, and you know, it's one of the things that grew out of the whole Ferguson uh, protest movement a few years ago. Uh, when we when we sort of collectively as a community realized that a lot of people were uh, being held in jail uh, who, and their lives were being wrecked when they really hadn't I mean they were so many of them hadn't even committed crimes so the bail reform project was was a was a great result of that but you know I mean these kind of, this kind of this is a hor- this is a horrible tragedy you know one would uh, I guess if I if I work for the bail project I would you know make sure that uh, that I that if I haven't all, if we aren't already, that we're looking at the dangerousness of the person who's right. who's uh, who's who's being bailed out, uh, because you know that is that that is a reason that a judge can keep a person can set a high bail and can keep a person in uh, jail before trial is if they have uh, if there's a reason to think that they're, da- they're dangerous. So like if they made some sort of threat you know, to go back and, and get their wife. So that's, that is, it's, it's, it is, it is a, I think it is a, you know, from, from just a, it is a tragedy and it hurts the reform movement. But you can't, so, you can't just set aside reform based upon uh, this this single case. Two thirds of the people who are in jail at any one time are there uh, pre-trial. They, they haven't been convicted convicted yeah. of any crime. So I mean, this is one of the one of the most unjust things about the American legal system is uh, the number of people who are held in jail when they, either they haven't committed a crime, they just were arrested because of a bench warrant or something like that, or because uh, they, can, they can't make some sort of very small amount of cash bail, like the, in this case, I, I think it was $500. I think there, there are two separate issues. One issue is this, this poor versus rich people issue. And I think, you know, and, and if, I think most people would agree, we shouldn't keep people in jail just because they're poor and let rich people out just because they can afford it. What we've then combined this issue with, which is this notion which Bill was talking about, which is potentially violent people, and how do we identify those? I remember when I was on the police board, Chief Moqua at the time saying, I can tell you, he goes, I could make a list of the people who are likely to murder someone in the next few years, and because they knew, but we, we don't just arrest them and put them in jail. That's not the American way. So we have to, this is one of the, the, the downsides of our system is, you know, even if somebody threatens, we may not be able to keep them in jail forever because they can say, well, I was just say- saying something. I didn't do anything. Are we really going to put all these people in jail? And it's tough. To wrap this up, though, yeah. um, you know, the, 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 our society is very focused on taking one little thing that is often the exception to the right, rule right. Mm-hmm. and then making that the thing that dictates how we um, either approach it from a, a, a perception point of view or even address it from a public policy point of view. Um, so uh, on the, the continuum, how serious is this in terms of is this the thing that is going to make the pendulum swing the other way? I guess I don't think so. I think I think, I so think that yeah. I think there's enough steam behind the whole sort of uh, jail reform and prison reform movement that uh, this single instance, as tragic as it is, is not going to derail that. But I was surprised at how strongly some people that I respect and who are, you know, public commentators 
were re- reacting to this, and I was, I was kind of surprised. Yeah, Charlie Brennan was about to lock up the bail project the other day on the, yeah, on the radio. Yeah, I usually agree <laughs> with a lot of what he says. Karen, one of our listeners, writes, The problem isn't the bail project or whether or not he could have afforded bail on his own. It's that domestic assault or any case of assault is considered a misdemeanor. Um, and and I, I don't recall the exact, uh, I mean, he was arrested for a misdemeanor, but it was unrelated to his domestic situation. And it was an assault misdemeanor, I believe, with what he was arrested no, for. No, it, it was It was related, related to that? To, okay. Yeah. No, he hit her in January, and it was issued. So it was and, that that... Right. So, Karen's, so uh, Marie, uh, how is you agree with Karen's point there? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, until we take domestic violence seriously in this country, um, you know, that that's part of the problem. The law only lets, even if the circuit attorney wanted to charge, I mean, the law only lets you go so far on what you're charged with. And it, they consider this a misdemeanor. So well, I, I agree. We, we've been talking so far about the effect that this has on the bail project and maybe it having a, a difficult uh, effect on them. But maybe maybe we're looking at this the wrong way. Does this have the potential to increase scrutiny of how we look at domestic violence when when someone who was arrested for it got an order of protection, could make bail and uh, and and commit a murder allegedly that mm-hmm. same evening? Um, do you think that there could be some movement in that direction? I I hope so. But we've seen this happen so yeah. often. We have seen this happen so often. You get the order of protection, they still go back and they kill, you know, the the woman who's abused. Mm-hmm. So I, I would like to think so, um, but I'm so, not hopeful. And you know, it was Johnson. It was the it was the victim who got the order of protection. It's just mm-hmm. that those orders of protection are they don't necessarily protect you if your husband walks in the door and yeah. you know, slugs you. So what would be the fundamental change to the law? That would better protect victims of domestic violence. If if the three of you could, you know, craft the legislation in the next thirty seconds, <laughs> what I mean, what is the what is the big uh, the big area where one change could really do a better job of protecting them? Wow, I, I don't know if you could say one change would, you know, who, what what we work on is education, and we work mm-hmm. on education with girls as young as. 10 years old to talk about how you deserve to be treated, how people you love, you know, should be treating you, and also with young men. And this is how women deserve to be treated. And so, I mean, that's the piece that I think we we really need to work on is, you know, look at how when people are raised, what they think that you know, how they should be treating each other. Especially young men, because if they're the ones yeah. that are doing abusing. Yes, I right. agree. I agree, too. Um, moving on to uh, Steve Stenger's legal woes. So uh, in, in March, uh, St. Louis County Executive's Office got a federal grand jury subpoena. Uh, County Executive Steve Stenger said he is not the target of the investigations, but other people don't agree with that assessment. And now he's hired a very high-profile defense attorney um, in, in relation to this case. So what do we make of that, um, especially considering the conventional wisdom that you don't hire the big-gun defense attorney unless you're in a world of trouble? Well, I'd say it's very hard to believe uh, yeah. Stinger's uh, comment. Uh, it would seem as though he is definitely under federal uh, investigation. Uh, they've you know, asked for uh, his uh, 
his uh, emails, I think, and phone records. Uh, this this, this seems, it relates to numerous instances in which it appears as though contractors uh, have received some sort of public benefit and then the Stinger campaign received large uh, uh, contributions. Uh, that seems to be at the heart of at the at the heart of the investigation, and it's our friend uh, Hal Goldsmith who we've we've had him on the I show before. Have, yeah. yeah, and um, yeah, I would not want to have Hal Goldsmith interested in what I'm doing. You know, I, <laughs> right. I, I would like to think I don't have anything to hide. But if Hal Goldsmith started calling me a lot and sending legal documents to me, um, he's a very good prosecutor. He knows what he's doing, and I don't think they do this kind of stuff lightly. So um, my understanding is exactly like Bill, and they're they're subpoenaing a lot of people around Stanger, uh, his advisors, and then these contributors. So I think it's a uh, it's going to be an interesting time. I think it's a, but I think it's healthy. Oh, it's, it's definitely it's healthy. It's back yeah. to what we were talking about with the president. Nobody's above the law, and you can't do things and expect people not to pay attention and to kind of call you out on it. And I couldn't agree with with you more about Hal. Hal, I mean, the U.S. attorneys do not, yeah. They don't fool around. They don't. Now, there's a huge difference between the public perception of something and the legal things Mm -hmm. that actually go through. But the the public perception, considering uh, the prosecutor's reputation, and again, a lot of people think when you bring in the big gun defense attorney, you, you acknowledge that you are in trouble. So... Um, so even if, as this proceeds, does Steve Stenger uh, have, regardless of, of how this is adjudicated or how it's settled or whatever the resolution is, does he pay for, for it simply because of what's happened so far? Well, he may, he may well. I mean, you know, for example, one of the very specific things that Hal Goldsmith has asked for is records about the county leasing uh, part of Northwest Plaza. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, Stenger said that would save the county money. Uh, right. It was pretty clearly demonstrated it would cost the county money. Now it seems as though it's going to cost the county taxpayers 69 to $77 million. Uh, the people who benefit are the uh, Garner brothers uh, who uh, owned the site, and they gave $365,000 to Stinger's campaign. Where there's smoke? We'll see. We're going to take a break. But coming up on the program, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Tony Messenger won the Pulitzer Prize in commentary. And yes, there's a very strong legal connection to that. We'll talk about that after the break. We'd like to remind you to give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 314-382-TALK. You can also send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org or tweet us at stlpublicradio.org. On air. I'm Jonathan All. I'm talking with Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Marie Kenyon for our monthly legal roundtable. We'll continue the discussion in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at choosewood.com. Welcome back. I'm Jonathan All. Now back to our legal roundtable with our guests, Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, Mark Smith of Washington University, and Marie Kenyon of the Peace and Justice Commission of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. As we mentioned, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch won another Pulitzer Prize. Tony Messenger won in commentary for his reporting on Missouri defendants who have served their sentence but are being charged with thousands of dollars 
in board bills for the time they spent behind bars. And uh, Marie, this goes a lot to uh, some of the same things that we that, that we were talking about earlier in the show about the uh, discrepancies and the possible inadequacies of the justice system. Does winning a Pulitzer Prize bring new attention to this, and, and does it help at all? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I am one of Tony's biggest fans. I have been um, for a long time. I really think he is a prophetic voice. I think he's fearless. I think if you read some of the commentaries, you know, when his articles are online and some of the things that people say, um, I think a lot of people would be like, okay, that's it. I'm just going to go home. And I think it kind of <laughs> inspires him to to do even more. He, This has been a problem that I used to run Catholic Legal Assistance Ministry, and it's a free legal office for poor people in the archdiocese. It's still going on. Amy Deemer now is the managing attorney. But we do all 11 counties of the archdiocese. And this was a huge problem in some of the outlying counties, um, that these judges, that was how they, you know, that's how they bought in money to the, to the county. And once again, punishing people because they were poor, because they couldn't make bail. They stayed in, cha-ching, cha-ching, every night they were in. Their bill increased. They get out. They still can't pay. And then these guys are saying, you have to come back every month, which means taking off work. There's no mass transportation system in outstate Missouri, so if you don't have a car, you've got to pay somebody to take you to court. And it was this vicious cycle, and lawyers have been talking about this for years. But um, I think it really took Tony to make it, you know, a public issue that everybody could be interested in. And it's already had an effect. The Missouri Supreme Court said, you know, these courts didn't have the didn't have the authority to put people back in jail for not being able to pay this jail board bill. Um, uh, uh, so, you know, this goes back to what we were talking about before when we were talking about the bail project, that so many people are in jail for not not for having committed a crime. And I just want to say, Tony Messenger, I, I agree. He's, he's been, a, been a prophetic voice on the Post-Dispatch. It's so exciting to see um, to see him win a Pulitzer Prize that was so, um, so richly deserved. You know, th- these are bad times for newspapers, including the Post-Dispatch. They just cut their copy desk uh, out entirely. Their circulation's down to 90,000. It was 400,000 when I worked for them. Uh, they've got 90 reporters. They used to have 375 when I worked for them. One person in the Washington Bureau who just retired. There were eight of us <laughs> back back in the day. But they still do some fantastic work, and this is this was really fantastic. It's the first time the, the, the Post-Dispatch has won a Pulitzer for something other than photography or, say, me, uh, uh, music criticism since 1965, as I recall, when uh, for, for editorials opposing the Vietnam War. Um, there's that old uh, saying that uh, very good journalism uh, comfort, comforts the afflicted and <laughs> afflicts the comfortable. Mark, how afflicted is the comfortable by the work of Tony Messenger? Well... Probably not enough, but I, I mean, like both um, the other guests said, I mean, things are changing, so that's good. And I think there were a lot of, I mean, I, I think we also, as lawyers, were benefiting from this system. Many there were there were these arrangements where lawyers were judges in one municipality and prosecutors in another were profiting, and it was not something that um, we we were proud of. And I think it's changing. So 
but it's, it's not changing uh, fast enough. There's still a lot of municipalities where are getting a major source of their revenue from these. Even though there was a law to change it, they're still getting too much money from it's you know the idea that we and we all know these these municipalities that are speed traps or whatever where there's a quota of we need this much money coming from tickets so just go out and get it for us Mm -hmm. um moving on the trump administration recently floated the idea of sending undocumented immigrants uh, to cities that have designated themselves as sanctuary cities those include chicago new orleans los angeles san francisco is it legal and and what might be the local connections uh, to this marie Well, I I don't think it's legal. I don't think the president can take money that's allocated for one thing and allocate it for something else to put migrants on the bus and send them where he chooses to. Um, The local implications are, Tony actually wrote a column today about there was a group of students from St. Louis U. This semester they had, it's called the Removal Defense Project, and it's teaching law students how to represent people who are at risk of being deported. And the students went down to, they were supposed to go to the Dilly um, Detention Center in Texas the week before last, and the Trump administration cleared them out, cleared I think they usually holds about 2,500 families. There were less than mothers and children. It's a family detention center, and there were less than maybe 100. They cleared them out. Um, And so the students with the the teachers who are from my old office wound up going to the bus station and talking to the migrants there as they got ready to get on the bus and go to wherever they were going to go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a big problem. I think the administration, are, they're using these migrants as pawns to make the case that, oh, the situation is so chaotic, it's so terrible, but, you know, this is their choice. They, there's three detention centers, and they're just closing them down. They're putting all the people on the bus and just dropping them off at the bus stations and expecting their families to send bus tickets and get them where they need to be. A lot of the belief um, uh, among the punditry seems to suggest that uh, the president never intended for this to actually happen, um, (laughs) that he suggested it um, partially out of hyperbole and uh, partially to make a political point. Um, So I guess my question is, Is this an example where the law works, where someone can make a a statement or a suggestion, even the president of the United States, and say, we we ought to do this? And then the law comes in and says, no, actually, you can't do it. Is this just a microcosm of separation of powers (laughs) on a very granular (laughs) Twitter-based universe? I I don't know. I don't know if it's it's worked yet. But, um, I mean, this was the crazy situation where, you know, it leaked out that this was being considered to Mm -hmm. send— uh, send folks to these sanctuary cities as sort of political punishment, and the you know the White House said no, 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 no. That that just was somebody mentioned it in passing, not something we're considering. You know, no way would we do that. And then the president tweets, uh, "Yeah, sure, I'm considering this. <laughs> what, what do you mean we're not considering this?" And uh, uh, so it's not like anybody went to court to stop it uh, from happening. You know, some people said, "Well." 
probably wouldn't be uh, legal because you'd have to get money from Congress to specifically do this, and you know, probably avoid, uh, you know violates the Hatch Act if you are having your government employees like enforce a political vendetta against to hurt Democrats. I mean, apparently <laughs> they specifically Democrats, said that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's an entirely improper motive. Uh, to for any public policy to just do it to hurt uh, hurt the other political side. Uh, I think it's less. You know, I would like to believe it's our system working, but I think it's more. And this goes back to Section Two of the Mueller report. Um, it's people around the president slow walking things, pretending like they didn't understand, um, saying no, you really don't mean that, or lawyers saying no. You can't do that. I'm not going to do that. I mean, and that's what a lawyer should be. That's This is part of the reason business people hate lawyers, you know, because we're the people in the room saying, I know you want to do that, but you can't do it this way. We'll try and figure out a legal way to get you close there. But, I mean, part of being a good lawyer is saying, no, we, we just can't do that. That's not allowed. The You know, so we got to come up with something else. Can, can you make a case for there being um, an interesting legal uh, efficiency in instead of the administration drafting something, implementing it, then somebody filing suit, then it going yeah. to court, then it being decided, for the executive branch of the government to say, hey, we're thinking about doing this, and then all the legal yeah. minds kind of say, well, yeah, but no. Yeah, and but I, say, think, well, I think, never mind. I think it's <laughs> even better when you had the legal mind right in the law and then in the, in the White House saying, no, we can't do that, Mr. President. I'm well, sorry. apparently yeah. that did happen yeah. because this is not because this the, this proposal was originally floated months and months ago, uh-huh. and all of the advisors at the time said, "No, you can't do that." And then he brought it. He back still up likes again to later. tweet about stuff. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this happens a lot of times in all sorts of administration where you have trial balloons that are floated to see how is the public going to yeah. react, and then if re- if there's this terrible reaction, the whole thing gets gets dropped. It's just that Trump's ideas are so you know incredibly over the top that they you know they like like this one, that they attract even more attention. It's also part of the, this is part of the price we pay for the rule of law, which is it's not efficient. You know, if you, and I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that this plan is efficient, but I'm saying sometimes you, you know, as a government, we want to do things a particular way. Well, let's, it wouldn't have been nice if we had locked up this guy who killed his wife beforehand just because he was a, well, we we have an inefficient system, but that's what the rule of law is. It protects our rights and it protects, and, and, and we don't always get to do what we want to do. Is it a fair statement then to say that, that one of the real challenges is that the, the law can't protect 100% of the people 100% of the time, and it's those unfortunate times that we kind of, when things, where it doesn't quite catch everything that we just have to say, yeah. that's tragic, it's unfortunate, but it's one of the, the things, things that... Go. That uh, is otherwise but like, part like of the system. Like I said, when you read part two in the Mueller report, you you should be grateful for lawyers. <laughs> lawyers are the voice of reason in that one, um, except, except for the lawyer who went to uh, Michael Cohen and said, in connection with, uh, was the president still negotiating for a Moscow hotel, and said, now stick with the roadmap, don't, <laughs> and stick with the roadmap, and the president will uh, protect you. That that's not a very good act no, by that's a lawyer. Not. Let's go to something a little bit lighter, and uh, this is, uh, I love it when trademark law actually gets Mm -hmm. fun and interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a case involving trademarks recently that made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, The Government Patent and Trademark Office consistently rejected the trademark applications of a clothing line that goes by the letters, i got to be careful with this at the FCC, F-U-C-T. 
saying that that word violates the federal statute that bars trademark protections for things that are immoral or shocking or offensive, scandalous. Uh, Critics say that the trademark office applies standards inconsistently, and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg during oral arguments actually said, do 20-year-olds generally find F-U-C-T to be shocking or scandalous? <laughs> um, this is definitely more of a, a fun and interesting way of how we look at, uh, at, at profanity and trademark law and, and, and how society uh, changes over time. So what do we make of that? Well, I can, I can answer her question, which is, no, 20, <laughs> the 20-year-olds who are in my classes, they I've, do. I've had them use that in papers they've turned in. I mean, I'm pretty low-key, and I make them do, like, one-page briefs of Supreme Court. And and I, I said afterwards, I said, look at you know, I know I'm kind of low-key, but you can't use the F word when you turn in a paper to me. I just got to draw the line there. So I'm, I'm feeling really old and out of it, you know. <laughs> there was also in this case um, the reference to Steak and Shake because there was a suggestion that, you know, if we start uh, enforcing moral norms, you know, that a Steak and Shake, uh, we're, we're endorsing meat eating and some people might see that. So are we going to ban a beloved Steak and Shake from some kind of IP protection? And, and we're not. So, uh, but, but, I think where it's going to get interesting, I mean, we had the case, what was it, a year ago about the, with the um, racial... The uh, slants. slants. There, there was, was a, a band. Uh, an Asian-American band called the Slants. They said they were, they were trying to sort of, sort of own the derogative, derogatory term that was used uh, against some Asian-Americans. And the Supreme Court said, and, and the, they, they, they were denied... Uh, protection for that name, and the Supreme Court said the denial of protection violated their First Amendment rights. So we'll, maybe the same thing will happen here. We'll see. <laughs> is, is is profanity and uh, and and what is obscene uh, it, that obviously changes from time to time? But uh, uh, I'm, do, do we think does this how the court rules on this? Do you think this will actually have some? legs and, and long-term impact on whether you can change a swear word slightly and then put it on your brand and then get it trademarked. Maybe the Supreme Court will say, like Justice Stewart said many years ago oh. in connection with obscenity, uh, we know it when we see it, and F-U-C-T is not it. <laughs> I think I think we're going in the direction where everything's going to get protection. I mean, I, IP protection, if you want it, including swear words. Well, if they're going to go after steak and shake, I can't yeah, help well, them. We I can't, cannot allow well, that. Well, they, 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 they drew that <laughs> yes. as a firm line, a line in the sand that well, they would not cross. <laughs> where does the gas station yeah. chain come and go fall in, in that, <laughs> that, that same thing? Um, moving on, Wikilinks co-founder Julian Assange was recently kicked out of the Ecuadorian embassy in London. He had been in asylum there for almost seven years, which is a long time to spend in an embassy. Uh, he's accused of publishing a series of U.S. government leaks from Chelsea Manning in 2010. Is Julian Assange a journalist, or is he a crook? And is that the legal question that really uh, comes together here? So I say yes and yes. Yes, he's a journalist. He acts as a publisher. He he gets information which is uh, top secret or and and often damaging, and he publishes it. Yes, he's a journalist. He's uh, he's uh, an unethical and often immoral. Journalist, he in this case, the you know the the indictment against him says that he hack, he helped Chelsea Manning um, try to hack into a password to get particular government secrets. Uh, no journalist has protection to do that. Uh, a journalist for the New York Times or the Washington Post, if they helped a leaker. 
uh, in his hacking, his or her hacking of secrets, they would be violating the law and they could be prosecuted too. Mark Crook or journalist or both? I defer to Bill. He's the journalist. He knows much more about it. But my sense is, yeah, he's 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 doing illegal things. So, you know, you can't do illegal things and then say, I get a pass from the law. Marie? Oh, I'm with these guys. Can't do illegal things and then say, oh, sorry, yeah. I'm a journalist The now. rules don't apply to me. Well, I, I will I will pull a Bill McLaughlin, McLaughlin group here and say the correct answer is Julian Assange is not a journalist. But <laughs> wait, I might... wait, why do you think he's not a journalist? Well, I, I uh, wow, okay, wait a yeah, pigeonhole me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, you don't get to ask the questions. <laughs> no, I, no, I, I, I do whatever does, I want. I, I think that, that the, the, there was a great piece written on this uh, about how journalism is not simply dumping information. It's about learning, reporting, curating, interviewing, analyzing, so and he making, didn't put enough and, effort and making it. a conscious decision of what is and is not newsworthy and in what context. Simply taking material and so passing, printing, printing the Pentagon Papers is not journalism. In my opinion, that simple act, no. But if you go back to the Washington Post, uh, printing the Pentagon Papers, it was accompanied by journalism. The the simple publishing of them, maybe so not. You got to have a little sauce on the side, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that 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 the sauce is uh, is is the information, and then the uh, the main. See, uh, I, the I think that's a slippery because all you got to do then is say, "Well, pretty big deal, huh?" And I would argue, "Okay, there's your commentary." <laughs> It's great that we can't agree on that. That's wonderful. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank all of you for joining me today. Uh, Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, Mark Smith of Washington University, and Marie Kenyon of the Peace and Justice Commission for the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Uh, great legal roundtable and great minds. Thank you very much for, uh, for your input and thoughts today. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.